June 26th, 2020. Denver Cruz removed for safekeeping the statue of Kit Carson from the Pioneer Monument, installed more than a century ago at the corner of Broadway and Colfax at the end of the Smoky Hill Trail. Tessa McLean, speaking for the American Indian Movement, said, The Kit Carson statue to us represents genocide. He was an Indian killer. One man at the corner of Broadway and Colfax in Denver shouted, If they don't take it down, I will. Denver Parks and Rec's department in response said, We decided it would be best instead of the people sneaking out at night and trying to pull it down, we'd be a bit more proactive and remove the statue. Can we just think about all the Leslie Nopes out there and what must be the busiest time ever for the Parks and Rec's departments? The figures on Pioneer Monument were designed to depict pioneering characters. The hunter, the prospector, the pioneer mother and child. At the top, sculptor Frederick Mahomes, well, a little mispronunciation there, McMonies had to do it, had initially planned to put a Native American chief on top of the Pioneer Monument, but Denver residents objected. Kit Carson was the compromise. Welcome to the podcast, Kit. Dealing with sometimes the uncomfortable and always the historical. My name is Marcus, and this is Ozymandias. Who made this thing? Who is the guy? What was happening when it was put up? And how did it come down? Let's start. So our, our guy, Frederick uh, Mahomes, McMoney's, he is designing this massive statue. And this thing, uh, which ultimately is looking at Kit Carson on the mount of a amazing horse on its back to hind legs, you know, galloping into the sunset. Uh, This Frederick Mahomes fountain originally cost the city of Denver $75,000. It was unveiled in 1911. Uh, Around the rim of the fountain, there are three reclining bronze figures. It's pretty poetic. The hunter, the prospector, the pioneer mother. Um, As we spoke earlier, when the model of the monument was unveiled to Denver residents in 1906, five years before... Uh, the Denver residents took significant offense that a Native American was at the apex and demanded that it was replaced with uh, someone else. So Kit Carson was that compromise. The people were stoked about that, and it, and it passed. So in comes Frederick Mahomes into history, Frederick McMoney's, and uh, you know he's going to be catching it from both sides here. Uh, one resident at the 1911 unveiling comments on this statue of Kit Carson that it looked like something that might have been modeled by a Frenchman whose acquaintance with the country had been limited to the reading of a ba- bad translation of dime novels. Pretty amazing. Uh, this thing itself is huge, guys. This is one of the uh, biggest monuments that we will cover, likely on the pod in the duration of the pod. This is a a fountain made of bronze with marble stairs and a marble base. It's a concrete plaza underneath. It's extremely impressive. We're talking 35 feet tall, 25 by 25 square feet. This is a 
in the monument game. This is a behemoth, uh, and it actually is beautiful to look at. So give yourself 20 seconds, go to Google and search Pioneer Monument Denver to take a look at, at what we were, were taking down. Uh, this is Denver's tribute to the pioneers who crossed the great American desert, braved the Indians and the elements, and settled the West. This cost $70,000. The fountain was again renovated in 1983, and it's in a prominent place right in the heart of Denver. This is a, a gateway to the West uh, type of monument. You know, it's not the great arch in St. Louis, but certainly we're getting that sort of type of vibe from this as far as a marker on the road to the West. And yes, McMoney's the, the sculptor himself, he did catch some grief for sure because this thing is hyper-romanticized. It's a little dramatic, and it absolutely is telling a story of the human cost of the Wells Fargo Express, of Butterfield's Overland Dispatch, the human cost of the Oregon Trail, and ultimately the Pioneer Monument here in Denver for more than 100 years symbolized the erasure of the diverse nations of people who lived here before those pioneers got to them. One of those pioneers is our guy of the pod, Kit Carson. Kit Carson, as a figure in American history, he he needs a little bit more spotlight because he is just absolutely everywhere. I want to start towards the middle of his life, the middle of his story, just with a story that kind of represents his mystique. The idea for the modern marathon was inspired by the legend of an ancient Greek messenger who raced from the site of Marathon to Athens, a distance of about 25 miles, with news of an important Greek victory over an invading army of Persians in 1490 BC. 25 miles, that's what a marathon is in reference to this moment in this battle that was, for the time, what unlocked the golden age of Greece on the back half of defeating the Persians freeing up what we know in Alexander the Great to go conquer the world. This is an important moment where monument, where marathons are coming from. So coming back to Kit Carson, this is American history's closest thing to the story of marathon. The runner from marathon, uh, Pheidippides, uh, I don't know actually how to say that in Greek, but America's version of that is Kit Carson. The next time you run a 26.2, you might think about this story. This story starts December 6th, 1846. We're talking about the Battle of San Pascal, America versus Mexico. This is the war for California. America, under General Fremont, we and our soldiers who are trying to control this territory, we're in a dogfight. For control of California. Supplies are low, reinforcements are far away. The USA is on the verge of never seeing California as its property. History is in the balance and under one man's feet. From Napa County to San Diego, one scout courier, 
this man of the mountain who has this mystique in the camp of, of, of uh, the soldiers and this long history that we can talk about. But this is the guy that gets tapped on the shoulder to save the day. He runs to San Diego from Napa County, runs to San Diego, rallies reinforcements, and secures the Bay Area, freeing the conflict of deadlock with a fresh set of soldiers and horses. Kit Carson was called on to do that. You know what he's then asked to do after that? Run a message from this battle point in Napa County. Take that message all the way to Washington, D.C., as fast as you possibly can so that our president at the time, President Polk, our man who is pushing Manifest Destiny in a four-year campaign, he would have been great as a presidential candidate running in today's age, something to rally behind that sounded a little bit different, something that no one had done before, and he said he was going to do it in four years. Well, in this instance, it's, uh, it's conquering all of the indigenous lands of North America. Um, so Kit Carson, he's asked to do this route twice so that the president at this time knows what is happening in the West. Kit Carson was that messenger. This is not his last time that he's going to be bouncing back and forth from California to D.C., from New Mexico to D.C., from D.C. to California. He is a traveling man. Kit Carson was everywhere. Born in Kentucky, he traversed the Trans-Mississippi west from Missouri to the California coast. He began his career very, very young. He was trading in like caravans back and forth throughout New Mexico. He got in with some real rough and tumble kind of international people that are just chasing the, the, the trapping game, chasing otters around, some Frenchmen from Canada, some, some folks from Spain who are in the fur trade coming up from Mexico, and everyone's kind of getting together. I'm thinking about this almost like, you know, is this most Eisley, the cantina of, of mercenaries all getting together from across the galaxy? Kit Carson, he's brought up in this kind of Han Solo rough and tumble crowd. They go on and have a successful stint in the fur trade. The fur trade kind of goes out of, goes out. It's almost like tulips. All of a sudden, there's not a market for it. These guys are out of work. Well, what they can do is trap as well as anyone else in the West. They would say in these history books, and people just get so absolutely pumped about Kit Carson's ability to follow a deer or follow an otter or follow even a person through the woods for days, weeks, just following their trail, following their scent, seeing the types of sticks and twigs that they're breaking along the way. You know in movies when somebody sits down and kind of touches the earth and is like, they're 12 miles this way. That's Kit Carson. In the 1840s, Carson is hired as a guide by John C. Fremont. The Fremont expeditions basically are covering much of California, Oregon, the Great Basin area. This is like the political establishment taking hold of what Lewis and Clark found. Under Fremont's command, Carson is participating in the conquest of Mexican California. In the 1850s, he's also appointed as uh, an Indian agent to the Ute Indians and to certain parts of the Apaches. Um, Historians are quick to note that Kit Carson looked at the indigenous peoples of the West, not as we look at them in 2020 with hindsight of Native Americans, 
Uh, at the time, that didn't mean anything. It was a a thousand nations of diverse peoples, and from one conversation to the next, Kit Carson was known to size up the people that were in front of him and deal with them either as friend or deal with them as foe. And from a case-by-case handling of the folks that he was running into in the West, it makes it hard in history to look back and say, well, was Kit a friend of the native peoples who were here before us, or was he a foe? Dime novels catch wind of these journals from Fremont out here in the West, and all these, you know, D.C. kind of political folks are starting to push this narrative that President Polk has a Western elite scout, a Lewis and Clark of our time. Hundreds of these dime novels are pushed out from Kit Carson of his legend, and his legend grows, and potentially his legend outgrows his reality. Uh, One story that illustrates Kit Carson to a T, he discovers a, a book about himself in an Apache camp. And what he was doing was he was at home in Taos in New Mexico, living with then at his time, um, his wife, who was a Ute of ancestry and descent. And because of the close relationship with, with those tribes and those nations uh, of the area, Kit Carson was, was going on hunts and a part of the family, and he married into that, and that was his world. Kit Carson gets a knock on the door, the Apaches had taken a young mother and her child and that there was a missing persons alert and that the, the authorities needed the best tracker in the West to find these individuals. You can just kind of think about that story. This one isn't a dime novel. This actually happens. Well, what happens, Kit Carson catches the trail and all these people are amazed while he's on it. We're, we've got a trailman. We've got a guy who knows how to get him back. And the individual is, is Mrs. White. Well, turns out she has been she has been killed, and just minutes before he arrives, uh, they were just too late. And Kit Carson writes in his memoirs, in camp was found a book, the first of any kind that I've seen, in which I was made, he's talking about himself in the book, which I was made a great hero, slaying Indians by the hundreds. I've often thought that Miss White read the same and prayed for my appearance that she might be saved. From that quote, I also wonder about, you know, what was on the minds of those Apache young men who are thinking about the white man who is cometh in the West and destroying all that they know. Kit Carson to them for sure was not a hero, reading that dime novel from their perspective. From their perspective and from Kit Carson's, this story would go on to haunt Kit to his dying day. But it does represent, A, his incredible utility to the governments of the West. He knew the land. He knew the fields. He knew where to go. He knew how to track. And he was probably, probably as far as a representative of this time period, 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, Kit Carson is probably the authority on the American West. It also turns out he's illiterate does not know how to read, was never fully educated, was born whose father died young and who had to pull himself up through these rough-and-tumble life of his on the West in one of the most just truly adventure tales of our, of our uh, young nation's history. Kit Carson, he does kill and murder, and he does fight. 
but he also saves and he also participates in history in an extremely fluid, in-the-moment way. So how does Kit Carson, from these dime novels of him slaughtering all these people, how does he go on to get to the top of this statue? Well, we know that the Denver people said, hey, we don't want this to be a, a, a person of indigenous descent on the top of our monument in the middle of our city. This should be about what President Polk was doing with Kit Carson in the first place. Manifest destiny. This is our land now. This is our time to discover this West. So this statue, it's going up. It goes up. I mean, the first reveal to the Denver populations in 1906. Well, what's happening in 1911 when the statue actually gets into place? March 7th of 1911, we're still in the same sort of relationship with our our partners to the south of Mexico. Uh, March 7th, nearly 20,000 troops One-fourth of the entire United States Army at that time is pointed to the Mexican boundary, to the Mexican border, to create a defensive perimeter around our southern border at the Rio Grande. Things are heating up in the geopolitical world. Just five days later, after we're mobilizing troops to keep our eye on what's happening south, just five days later, on March 12th, American economic expert... W. Morgan Schuster, he arrives by invitation and he assumes dictatorship power over Iran. Persia's finances are now controlled by an American economist. Days later, Mexican's president, Porfirio Diaz, he flees the country during now American uh, Mexican Revolution. You know, this is a world in motion, in movement, and the First World War is is on its way. We are in this era of America's rise, of America using force over Mexico, of America using economics over Iran. And while this is happening, things like the first transcontinental airplane flight are happening from New York to, to Pasadena. The transcontinental airplane flight, which does in... in <laughs> 82 hours, what was taking Kit Carson weeks to do in his time, in the year that his statue is going up, that the first transcontinental airplane flight is going on is insane for me to think about the historical value there. September 25th, again, 1911, groundbreaking begins in Boston for Fenway Park. We as a nation are feeling so good about where we are. Baseball is there. We've got the American story. We've got all the states united. We've got our hands in, in some money and some foreign policy. We're starting to play the game. We're starting to be a world power just like everybody else. And we feel good about where we are headed. This is a time of optimism, a time of growth, a time of expansion, and a time of technology making our country feel like one country and not a collection of thousands and thousands and thousands of different types of folks across the the country like it was during Kit Carson's time. It's just ironic, you know, as we sit here in 2020, so much of the world's politics relates around what is happening in in, in Iran, what is happening with the United States and, and the Mexican border. You know, what is what is happening in American like technology and relationship and and what is America's West today and what is our North Star today? Things would have been more clear in 1911, 
But doesn't it sound like we're up to the same type of activities now a hundred years later, worried about the same types of episodes? It certainly is a little bit of a reversion back to, and we can assume that we, by way of what we're experiencing in our 2020, we actually probably align with what's happening in 1911 Denver, as well as any other time period in American history. I found a really nice quote from Nikki Gonzalez, Regis University history professor and vice provost for diversity. Uh, Here's the quote. There was some movement in the tumult of the 60s, but it was a one-step-forward, one-step-back process. This, referring to today, feels different because people from marginalized groups have louder and more powerful voices today. It's worldwide, and it comes at a confluence with the pandemic. This time, people seem more open to discussing the reason behind the memorialization of certain images. To put that in context... Gonzalez often thinks of statues and monuments as a timestamp of a present moment in the past. They're built by the people and the groups whose voices were the loudest and the most politically and economically powerful at the time. It's a story that often serves their sense of themselves and of others. That means that the histories of entire groups of peoples are lost and silenced. As Hampton Sides wrote in the amazing book, 2006's Blood and Thunder, the epic story of Kit Carson, as he writes, his contradictions mirror the ambiguities in the whole Western expansion. Because it was a glorious adventure in many ways and an unbelievable, shameful act as well. Back to 2020, Kit Carson's grandson... John Carson, he had this to say after the monument came down in Denver. This guy lived and did his thing 160, 170 years ago. When people ask me about this, I'm more concerned with what people who actually knew him thought of him, at least concerned with people who've actually studied the man. It doesn't matter whether they're white, brown, red, or purple. You're not going to find too many people who actually didn't have something good to say about him. Professor Gonzalez, the author Hampton Sides, and Kit Carson's grandson really all agree. Statues and monuments are a timestamp of a present moment in the past. But if everything we create anew in 2020 is our timestamp of our present moment, is it a responsibility for all people to participate in deciding on what we should put in place for all of these monument vacancies. The reason it was Kit Carson and not a Native American on this 30-foot behemoth statue is that there were some really loud, angry Denver people between 1906 and 1911 that made this poor sculptor Mahomes recreate his life's work and put Kit Carson on it. If you don't play an active role in the local government, you are spoken for. Kit Carson died 1868. One year later, 1869, railroad would for the first time connect America 
from sea to shining sea. Removing the utility and context of these scouts, couriers, from modern history. Kit Carson's last words were, Goodbye, friends. Adios, compadres. As we have done for five times on this podcast, my name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. We are available on Spotify. We are available on the podcast app. We're available on SoundCloud. See you next time.